Good morning. My name is Matthew Holbrook, for those of you who don't know me. I normally get to teach the high schoolers and the anchored young adult group, but this morning I get to be with you and I'm excited about that. Um, today we're going to be looking at John chapter 18, so if you would turn to John 18, and when you find that, stand for the reading of God's Word. While you are doing that, just wanted to make a comment in general about preaching, uh, wanted to just draw our attention to the reality that what I'm doing here this morning and what maybe other elders might do periodically or um, other pastors who are not Pastor Mike, um, what we do on these Sundays where we periodically might fill in for Pastor Mike is not in the same universe as what Pastor Mike does week in and week out. Um, you see, when I get to preach like this on an every once in a while basis, I can cherry pick passages. I get to pick what's like the good stuff to preach or something that I'm really excited about or really passionate about. And uh, that's everybody who preaches periodically gets to do that. Pastor Mike, on the other hand, he wakes up each Sunday and he preaches the next verse and the next verse and week after week, month after month. He is doing that. He doesn't get to dodge the difficult passages or the passages he doesn't want to talk about. He doesn't get to avoid the, the passages that don't outline or don't preach as well. Um, he's preaching the Word of God to us each week, verse after verse after verse, and it is a totally different task, and it is a, an immense uh, labor of love that he does for us and uh, for the people of God each week. And I just want to say I am very, very thankful for what he does and uh, in doing that to feed us each week. So um, I just wanted to, uh, to draw our attention to that as we start here this morning. John chapter 18, verse 1 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered, and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Jesus therefore said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Lord, thank you so much for this insight into the person of Jesus. Um, God, would you please reveal to us more truth about Jesus and that uh, as we understand him, his mission and what he came to do, that uh, our worship would be shaped and transformed by it and that we would exalt Jesus in our lives and help us to do that here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. John chapter 18. It's Thursday night. It's the Thursday night of all Thursday nights. It's the Thursday night before the Friday. 
the Friday that would be the climax of all of history. Before time began, the Father, the Heavenly Father, predetermined that the pinnacle of His eternal plan and purpose would be that Friday. Imagine the spectators in heaven at that time, on that weekend. God the Father, for eternity, has been waiting with endurance, and now He's watching with expectation, totally sovereign, totally in control. The angels from heaven are watching with anxious anticipation, lacking comprehension, but trying to understand Trusting the God of the universe, but they had to be a bit confused by what was happening on earth. And then on earth, what must Jesus have been feeling on that Thursday night? In His humanity, the emotional weight of the weekend had to weigh heavily on Him. It's Thursday night, it's, it's Passover. Jesus had been meeting with the disciples in the upper room. John chapters 13 through 17 record what happened that night in the upper room. Jesus with his disciples, they had the the last supper, Passover dinner. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He instituted the bread and the cup. He dismissed Judas as the traitor to complete the ultimate treachery. He gave final instructions to his disciples. He told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He promised them the Holy Spirit. He was foretelling of his death and his resurrection. And then the disciples, at the end of that time, they got a front row seat into inner Trinitarian communication. They were sitting on the front row as Jesus prayed to the Father. And we saw communication from the Son to the Father as Jesus was interceding on behalf of his disciples, interceding on behalf of ultimately all who would believe That night, Jesus was interceding on your behalf if you are a child of God. This was the Thursday night of all Thursday nights, and it's far from over. We come to John chapter 18. I'd like for us to see this morning that Jesus' singular focus on his mission should lead us to worship him more fully. Jesus' singular focus on his mission should lead us to worship Him more fully. And toward that end, there are three realities in this passage that I'd like to draw our attention to, three realities that should shape our worship. Three realities that should shape our worship. And first of all, we're going to look at, number one, Jesus is wholly committed to His mission. In John chapter 18, Jesus is wholly committed to His mission. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. So Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, there at the Mount of Olives. And on his way, as he's leaving the upper room, says when he had spoken these words, when he had completed that prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17, when he had spoken these words, he left the upper room with his disciples to head to the garden. And on his way to the garden, he crosses this ravine this ravine called the Kidron. That ravine would go on the east side of the temple. And in that ravine, in that valley, it was normally dry. But during the spring, the spring rains would come and would fill that ravine and you'd have a a flowing stream or a small river. And at the time of Passover, here in the spring, that would be the case. This ravine would be full of water. It'd be a flowing brook, stream 
through the Kidron Ravine. We know that uh, during this time and on this day even, from Mark chapter 14, verse 12 says, On the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So the disciples are saying, Where do you want us to go prepare the Passover? It's going to be that night. And it says, On that day, the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. The historian Josephus tells us that it is estimated that about a quarter of a million lambs would have been sacrificed during that Passover. Imagine 250,000 plus lambs all being sacrificed on the same altar, one lamb after another after another. All the blood that would be generated by all of those lambs, gallons of blood produced by the slaughter of these lambs. And according to Leviticus, the priests would take that blood and pour it into a drain at the base of the altar. And that altar was on the east side of the temple bordering up to this Kidron Ravine. And this drain would go from the altar and exit out down in the ravine. And what we would end up with is gallons and gallons of blood from these lambs that have been sacrificed that would pour down the ravine and into that stream. And the stream at the time of Passover would turn blood red. Chapter 18, verse 1, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. Jesus was the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He was the final sacrificial lamb. He was the lamb to which all other lambs pointed. And here Jesus is crossing this ravine filled with the blood of the lambs that were pointing to him. Here's Jesus crossing the ravine filled with the blood of the lambs, proclaiming and reminding what Jesus was on his way to do. Verse 4 of chapter 18, it says, Jesus therefore knowing all the things that were coming upon him. Jesus knew exactly where he was going and what was going to happen to him. He knew what awaited him, knowing all things that were coming upon him, knowing what awaited him, knowing the prophets, knowing the plan, knowing the judgment, knowing the wrath, knowing the condemnation, knowing the physical torture, knowing the agony Jesus crossed the Kidron. Jesus knew Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. Jesus knew the truth that Paul would later write in Romans chapter 1, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that wrath of God was targeted for Jesus that weekend. Jesus knew that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. Jesus knew what was coming upon him. He was on his way to the garden. This was the closest thing that Jesus had to an earthly home. We see in verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who also was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives, and in this garden, this is where he would go to pray regularly. The disciples knew it. It was common knowledge. This was where Jesus would go to communicate with, to commune with the Heavenly Father. This was virtually a, an earthly home for Jesus. 
And, and we know that he went there to pray, and Luke chapter 22 gives us some insight into this. In verse 41, it says, he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what awaited him. He says, not my will, but yours, but Verse 43 of Luke 22 continues, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus knew what was coming when he crossed the Kidron. He would be anticipating all that would happen. The Lamb of God on his way to be the final, ultimate sacrifice. And he sees on his way, a visual reminder of the blood of sacrificial lambs pouring through that river and pointing to him. Shadows of the real thing that he was going to fulfill in 24 hours or less than 24 hours. And yet Jesus walked across that ravine and to the garden knowing what was coming upon him. I just wonder, what was he thinking as he crossed that ravine and he looked down and he saw that blood? Did he pause and look at that blood? Did he consider its significance? What was going through Jesus' mind when he crossed that ravine? And how heavy did his feet feel as he took one step after another? Have you ever had to walk someplace and you did not want to go but you knew you had to and your feet just felt so heavy? Maybe you have to tell yourself, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, and just keep moving. You know, that, uh, that happens. Maybe you feel that way when you pull up to the gym and you have to go work out, and you're like, oh, I know I should work out, but I really don't want to, and you have to force yourself to do that, or I feel that way going to the dentist, or, um, or maybe uh, if you're a student, you feel that way walking into a test that you're not prepared for. I have to take this test, but I don't want to go, or... Maybe you feel that way if you're heading into a really serious surgery and you know you have to have the surgery but you're afraid and you have to take one step after another. Or maybe you're sitting out in your car getting ready to walk into a funeral of a loved one and you just don't want to go through those next couple of hours or whatever might be in that funeral but you know you have to. And you know what I'm talking about? The weight, how heavy it is, how hard it is to move your feet. And I just have to imagine the magnitude of what Jesus was walking towards? How did that feel and and what did he have to do to move one foot in front of the other to cross that ravine? And with that stark reminder of what he was heading towards, one foot in front of the other, dreading, distressed, disquieted, he walked. He was committed to his mission. He was there for a purpose and he was committed to completing that mission. In his humanity, he persevered to do what could only be done in his deity, to be the ultimate sacrificial lamb and to absorb God's wrath for the sins of the world. That was his mission, and he was moving towards it, no matter how heavy the feet might be, no matter the reminders around him, knowing what was coming upon him. Verse 3, it says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So a Roman cohort would be 600 soldiers, and then it says that it came with uh, officers and chief priests and the Pharisees. So there's this whole group of other people that came. Um, most people estimate 
that it was uh, probably close to 1,000 people that were showing up in this group. And they're showing up with lanterns and torches and weapons. So imagine the scene. You've got 1,000 people going into this garden to arrest a teacher, to arrest a rabbi, and they're bringing their weapons, and you've got 600 soldiers, and they're going there to arrest Jesus. Now, why would they feel the need to bring such strength in numbers and weapons to arrest Jesus? Well, not too long before this, maybe just uh, three or four weeks before, we had what happened in John chapter 11 where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and it says in John 11 that the word spread. People knew this, there's something different about this guy. He raised somebody from the dead, somebody who was smelly and stinky. He raised him from the dead. Not too long before that, Jesus had gone into the temple with the money changers and the vendors and there'd be uh, thousands of people in the, on the whole temple mount um, for something like this and he went in with, and we'd have to have a, a loud voice and a whip and he went through and cleared them all out and it would take some strength and, and, uh, and power to, uh, to do that. They knew they were dealing with somebody that just wasn't an ordinary teacher. They knew that they were dealing with some, somebody who could create a lot of problems for them if they were to try to arrest him. It was also a full moon that night, but um, the, uh, the garden was covered with olive trees. And so they were probably anticipating that Jesus would flee into the trees under the cover of the trees where it would be dark. So they brought their lanterns and torches and they were ready to do whatever it was going to take to arrest Jesus, to keep him from getting away. Again, in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Or, as the high schoolers well know, that literally just says, I am, or in Greek that would be, ago ami, the name for God, the name for Yahweh. Jesus answers and, and says, I am. And Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am, or I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I, do, I tell the high schoolers all the time that uh, I think in heaven there will be great movie theaters and we will be able to go and stand in line and maybe hopefully there won't be lines, but we'll get to watch movies of the great scenes of the Bible with God as the director and showing us exactly what happened in different scenes. And there's lots of scenes in the Bible that I would love to see how did they actually happen. And this is one of them. This is one, I'm, in, I'm going to this theater, where I want to see the scene where a thousand people show up, 600 soldiers with weapons and lanterns and torches, and there's Jesus standing there saying, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, and Jesus says, I am. And a thousand people hit the ground. I'd like to see that scene. A thousand people is a lot of people. And they fall to the ground in the presence of Jehovah God. Jesus, if he wanted to, could have got away there, right? He could have got away anytime, let's face it, but this is the obvious place, a thousand people coming to get him. They're on the ground. He could have run away. He could have fled. He could have escaped. But he was committed to his mission, so committed that I imagine, I don't, it doesn't say specifically here, but that they're on the ground and he says, uh, who are you looking for again? When therefore he said, I am he, they drew back, fell to the ground. Again, therefore he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Jesus was committed to his mission. He had every opportunity to bail out, but he was committed to all that was to come upon him. 
He knew what they were going to do to him, but he was committed to his mission. He was willing to humble himself in obedience to the Father and his love for the lost. I would suggest that this commitment should inform and shape our worship. Our eternity is anchored in his commitment, in his faithfulness, in his resoluteness, in his steadfastness, in his resolve, in his constancy, in his allegiance, in his divine determination. His unwavering commitment to us anchors our souls, anchors our eternity. And when we see that played out in this scene, that Jesus put one foot in front of another, crossed that ravine, and gave himself to those soldiers and Pharisees and officers, he was committed to his mission to give his life as a ransom for many. Three realities that shape our worship. One, Jesus is committed to his mission. Number two, Jesus keeps his sheep. Jesus keeps his sheep. Back in verse 8, Jesus says, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Now, who are the these? Be the disciples that were there with him. So he's saying, if therefore you seek me, let the disciples go. Don't arrest them. And then we get a very interesting commentary from John, who wrote the book of John. In verse 9, he says, That the word might be fulfilled which he, Jesus, spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. So Jesus says, who are you looking for? Looking for Jesus, he says, I am he. And then he says, I told you that I am he. If you're seeking to arrest me, let the disciples go. And John says, the reason that Jesus said this was to fulfill his promise that he wasn't going to lose any. So let's try to unpack that. And I'm going to ask you to pay extra attention in this part because this might be misunderstood if, uh, if, you, if you're not able to, uh, to track. But look back at John chapter 6, which is what John is referring to in John 18. In John chapter 6, we see what, what this is a quote from or a reference to. And in verse 37, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. All that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's the context. Jesus is saying, all that are given to me, I'm going to lose none. I'm not going to lose anyone who is given to me. I will not lose them. Now, he's not talking about taking people on a field trip to the mall and I'm not going to lose them at the mall or I'm not going to lose them at Disneyland. He says, he says that I will raise them up on the last day. And then he says at the end, in verse 40, he says that uh, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the preservation of souls. Of all of the souls given to me, I will not lose one. I will not lose a single soul that has been given to me. That's the context of what he's saying there in John chapter 6. Back in John chapter 18, 
Jesus says, if you're seeking me, let these go. Let the disciples go. In order to fulfill what he had said, of those whom you've given me, I will lose not one. In other words, Jesus is saying, let these guys go. And John says, the reason that Jesus said that was because of his promise to not lose a single soul that had been given to him, not to lose eternal life. So what's the, what's the implication of that? How do you turn that around? What if they had been arrested? What does John seem to be implying that Jesus was saying? Maybe they would have lost their faith. Maybe they would have abandoned their faith if they had been arrested. Maybe it would have been too much for them and they would have been crushed and their faith would have been gone. They would have been lost. But John says, Jesus says, let them go in order that he would not lose them. And he would not allow them to go into that situation where maybe they could lose their faith. As it is, the disciples fled into the garden when Jesus was arrested. Peter denied Jesus three times. The disciples fell, but they didn't fall headlong. I love Psalm 37. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I love that. I can relate to that. I fall. We all fall on our way of pursuing the Lord, but if you're a child of God, you're going to fall, but not headlong. You're going to trip, you're going to stumble, but you're not going to fall on your face because the Lord is the one who holds your hand. He's going to keep you from falling all the way down. He's going to keep you from abandoning your faith, from losing your faith. So Peter could deny Jesus three times. The disciples could flee. But Jesus was not going to allow them to be in a situation where they could lose their faith completely. In Luke chapter 22, before this scene even happened, Jesus had a conversation with Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus had told Peter ahead of time, look, Peter, Satan's going to get a hold of you. But I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You're going to fall, Peter. I'm not going to let you fall all the way. I'm not going to let your faith fail. I'm holding you with, with my hand. And when you have turned again, you're going to be in a position. Strengthen your brothers. Peter was not lost. He did not fall all the way away. We cling to this Doctrine of once saved, always saved, that we cannot lose our salvation, that our eternity is secure, but do we really understand what that means? We're not saved because we say the magic words in a prayer and we punch our ticket into eternal life by those magic words. Rather, we're saved because we keep the faith, because we remain in Christ. Colossians 1 verse 21 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, this is how you used to be, you used to be alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in, bad, in evil deeds. This is, this is bad. Yet now, he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the good. So the bad is you were evil and engaged in evil deeds, but now because of Christ's death, you've been made holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the good news. But then there's that next word in verse 23 of Colossians 1. If, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. 
We are saved from ourselves if we remain in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Our faith is secure as long as we stay in the faith. Here's the reality, and I can speak for myself on this. I have no doubt that left to myself, I would abandon the faith. Left to myself, the attractions of the world, the appeal of the world, the desirability of sin is is too great, I have no doubt I would abandon the faith. Romans 8.8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It literally says, it is impossible for those in the flesh to please God. It is not possible to please God in the flesh. Continuing in the faith pleases God. And so we can't do that in our flesh. Left to ourselves, we would abandon the faith. But there's good news because the very next verse, Romans 8, is verse 9. It says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. We are not left to ourselves. We are not left to ourselves. If we are children of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, changes our desires, keeps us in the faith, keeps us steadfast. The Holy Spirit Spirit fulfills that if in Colossians 1. You are evil, you've been saved, if you continue in the faith, and the Holy Spirit fulfills that if and keeps you in the faith by changing your heart. He keeps us from losing our faith. He keeps us from succumbing completely to our flesh. We may fall, but not headlong. We are not going to fall all the way from Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God will not allow you to be in a situation in life where you will fall all the way away. God will not allow you, if you are a child of God, He will not allow you to be in a place where you will abandon the faith. He will not put you in a situation that is beyond what you can handle. He is going to protect you, and He is not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. More simply, God, for His children, God causes all things to work together toward the end of making you more like Jesus. Everything that happens in life is for the purpose of making you more like Jesus if you are His child. And verse 30 continues on and says that the ultimate end of this is glorification, or another way to say that is, is eternal life. Everything that happens in your life is for the purpose of making you like Jesus and bringing you to eternal life. God causes everything to work toward that end in our lives. Everything that happens, in other words, we can say everything that happens in our lives is for the purpose of keeping us. God gives us the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to change our desires, to make us want to seek after Him. And then as we battle with our flesh, He also orchestrates the events of everything that happens in our lives to make us more like Jesus. In John 18, Jesus kept the disciples from being arrested. And the implication seems to be that it would have been too much for the disciples. And so we can say on on the one hand, they could have lost their faith. They could have lost their salvation. But could have they? 
No, because Jesus was not going to allow that to happen. He was not going to allow them to be in a situation where they would be tempted beyond what they were able. So no, their, their eternal salvation was secure, but it's secure because they had the whole, well, at that time, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do, um, but they had Jesus holding on to them, and they had Jesus orchestrating the events of their lives to be able to uh, keep them from being in a situation where they could abandon the faith. If it was up to them, they may have lost their salvation. What God keeps us from is how he keeps us. What God keeps us from is how he keeps us. So what is it that God might be keeping from you or from me? There are certain dreams, ambitions, wants, desires that God keeps us from, but it's a part of how he keeps us. If everything that happens, God works together to make us more like Jesus, to bring us to eternal life, if that's true, then everything that he keeps us from is toward that end. And so we should be able to praise and worship Jesus no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what goes on, no matter what we are kept from or no matter what we are put into, it's all used by God to keep us and to hold on to us for eternity. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor angels or no principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We can say that because He is the one who's keeping us. He holds on to us. He doesn't allow us to fall headlong. The disciples theoretically could have been lost, but in reality, Jesus was keeping them and would not have allowed them to go into that situation of being arrested. Jesus keeps his sheep. How can that not lead us to joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, praise, exaltation of Jesus? How can that not lead us to worship him? Three realities that shape our worship. Jesus is committed to his mission. Jesus keeps his sheep. And then thirdly, Jesus models living with the mission in mind. Jesus models living with the mission in mind. Verse 10 in chapter 18, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus says, shall I not drink it? Shall I not accept what is coming? Jesus was focused on his purpose, focused on his mission. In a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says to Peter, at this time, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? All right, so let's, let's think about this for just a minute. What Jesus has said to Peter, he says, Peter, put away your sword. I could call on 12 legions of angels if I wanted to. And what does he mean by 12 legions of angels? Well, a legion is about 5,000, or 5,000 uh, angels would be in one legion. So 12, 12 times 5,000 would be 60,000 angels Jesus is referring to. Now in um, Isaiah 37, there was an instance where one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. So Jesus is making reference to 60,000 angels, and let's say that's the capacity of what an angel could kill, 185,000 people, 60,000 times 185,000 comes out to be 11.1 billion people 
that those angels theoretically could be capable of killing. Now, the population of the earth at that time was about 300 million people. So what Jesus is really telling Peter is, Peter, I've got the firepower on call that could kill every person on earth 37 times over. Put your sword away. I've got this under control. But imagine that scene in heaven that the angels, remember we, the, 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 the audience of watching all this going on and the angels watching Jesus about to be arrested and ultimately the angels watching Jesus be scourged and put on the cross and tortured and beaten. And What was that scene like in, the, in, in heaven? I appreciate Randy Alcorn and his ability to bring this to vivid life and I wanted to read a passage from one of his novels um, where he depicts what this might have been like. If you're not familiar with Randy Alcorn, he writes novels that usually carry parallel tracks where somebody early in the, in the book dies and uh, he will track what's happening on earth along with what's happening in the afterlife with the person who dies. And uh, it's a great approach to giving us a, a bigger perspective of what is happening in the universe. And in this particular scene, there's a character who um, has already died. His name is Finney. And he had died and he has now come into heaven and he is talking with an angel, and the angel in this novel, the angel's name is Zior, and uh, the angel is recounting to Finney the history of the world from the angel's perspective. And for your benefit, uh, in uh, Alcorn novels, uh, God is referred to as Elion, so if you hear that, you know it's a reference to God. But uh, Zior has been talking to Finney, and he has just finished telling him about the miracle of the birth of Jesus, and then it goes on like this. Zior, the angel, speaking to Finney, and just when we had thought Elion could not surpass this greatest miracle with another, there came the greater one. Zior stood and his voice trembled, not only with awe, but now with unmistakable anger. That little hill where little men were permitted to do unspeakable things to Elion's son, my comrades and I jammed against the portal begging permission to break through and strike down the cowards, to unleash the relentless wrath of heaven's army. We longed to raise our swords as one, to destroy every atom of the dark world. All that was in us thirsted for revenge. We ached to once and for all obliterate that cancer of rebellion against the Most High God. For the first time, Finney saw in Zyar seething anger fierce rage erupting to the surface. The angel paced back and forth like a caged lion, seeming suddenly much taller and more powerful, no longer the gentle teacher. Finney backed out of his way as Zyar metamorphosized, appearing as a towering oak tree, blown in a storm of wind and lightning, casting a menacing shadow and whipping out wildly with its branches. Here were these puny men, obsessed with the offenses of others against them, while themselves committing the ultimate offense of the universe, driving nails through the flesh of God, we longed to make them eat the dust of the ground and vomit clay. Any one of us could have struck them all down and we yearned to do it. Millions of us, legion upon legion, crowded forward from every corner of heaven, pressing and pushing, crying out and begging leave to destroy those who would dare to curse and mock and savage the holy Lamb of God. Zyor's mighty voice echoed in Finney's ears, and he couldn't imagine there was anywhere in heaven outside its range. Zyor was completely lost in the memories of that day. 
Then suddenly it was over. The angel sat down, the anger subsiding as swiftly as it had materialized. But Michael would not permit us, Zior said softly, for Elion would not permit him. Now, yeah, that's from a fictional novel, but I think that puts in perspective what very well may have been happening in heaven at that time and on that weekend. Angels crowded around and seeing that. Peter pulling out his sword, taking off somebody's ear, and Jesus saying, Peter, if I wanted to, you have no idea the firepower I could call down right now. You have no idea, Peter. Put that away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus is modeling ultimate humility and obedience. He holds the power of the universe and that he, yet he let puny men arrest him. He's the king of the universe and he allowed puny men to take him. He sacrificed his personal rights for the cause of the mission. He was willing to be trampled for the sake of the mission. More than anybody, he had every right to not allow that to happen. But he modeled how we should approach our mission. Are you willing to sacrifice your rights for your mission? To be trampled for the sake of the mission? Well, what is our mission? Just briefly, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul addresses this in verse 18. He says, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. To live is Christ, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says, my earnest expectation and hope is that Christ will be exalted in my body. That word exalted is megaluno. Really, all you need to remember about that is that first part, mega, to be made big. The word literally means to display as great, as enlarged, exalted, held in high esteem, lengthened, magnified. Paul's saying, that's my mission, to make Jesus look mega, magnified, great, spectacular, in high esteem. And for me to live is Christ. For me to live is to live in such a way as to make Jesus look great. And if I die, I get to be with Jesus, which is great. That's the mission. And then, interestingly, the very next chapter, Paul follows that up and he says, consider one another as more important than yourselves and follow the model of Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus set aside his rights and allowed himself to be trampled in pursuit of his mission. I just wonder, how well do we do that? Do we set aside our rights and allow ourselves to be trampled in our mission to mega Jesus? Are you so singularly focused on this mission to make much of Jesus that you can consider others as more important than yourself? Can you allow your rights to be sacrificed? Can you allow yourself to be trampled for the sake of that mission? Can you preserve unity in the church by swallowing your pride, your rights, your privileges when somebody says something or does something that offends you? 
Are you so focused on the exaltation of Jesus that nothing will get in the way, nothing will detract, nothing will distract from that mission? Can you choose to forbear when you've been wronged rather than to assert your rights? Yes, Jesus turned over tables in the temple and drove people out, but he did that because it was in the way of the mission. People were not honoring God, and he took action in that case. But when it comes to personal rights, he modeled humility and forbearance. He set aside his rights for the sake of the mission, and we're called to do the same. We're called to set aside our rights, to allow ourselves to be trampled in ways that allow us to make much of Jesus, to mega Jesus. And that in and of itself is worship. Jesus is committed to his mission, and it's a good thing for us that he was. Worship him for his faithfulness in this. Jesus keeps his sheep. Be thankful. See evidences of his keeping you. And worship him for his unwavering love to keep you. And Jesus models living with the mission in mind. So don't be consumed with your rights. Be mission-focused to make much of Jesus no matter what. Worship him by being so focused on magnifying him that you let nothing else get in the way of making him look great. Lord, thank you for this insight into the life of Jesus, into this time of his walk to the garden and his arrest. God, help us to see Jesus more clearly and to worship him more fully as a result. Help our worship and our love and our adoration to be shaped by what we see in this passage and all that we know and understand of Jesus and help us to grow in that knowledge all the time that Jesus may be magnified in how we would live, think, and act. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.